I don't know if you have a lifetime ambition. Well, one of my ambitions is to run a marathon. And yes, that does require a huge imagination. But on the 11th of June, I could finally have my big chance. And if you go into Waverley train station, you'll find a big banner telling you why. Because on that date, 15,000 athletes from all over the world will come to Scotland for the Edinburgh Marathon. My big day has finally arrived. But there's just one minor issue. And it's this. A marathon is 26 miles long. And I have never run 26 miles. And so last week, I went surfing on the internet. And I discovered some useful advice about how I could run this marathon. And let me tell you what I found. It was all quite simple. It says this. Check first with your doctor. Join a local, a local club. Look after your shoes. Stretch before you run. Eat well. Drink lots of water. And finally start training by the 20th of March. So there's always next year. And if I did these things, I could run my race with confidence. Now let me ask you this. What about running your life race? Okay? Not just a marathon, but the rest of your life on this planet. How do you run that race with confidence? Now, as we all know, life can be hard. Would you agree? Life can be hard. Let me remind you of some of last week's top news headlines. One headline said this. Triple blasts rock Egypt resort. There is a pain of losing a loved one. Another one said, jobs at risk in prudential revamp. And a final one, UK fuel prices reach new record. As Tom Hanks once said in Forrest Gump, my mama always said, life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And so tonight, we're going to ask ourselves this question. What is the secret for living with confidence? What is the secret for living with confidence? And two and a half thousand years ago, three young men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, gave us an answer to that question. Now tonight, we're going to look at what they said. Now the story is found in the book of Daniel. So let's turn back to Daniel chapter 3, and it's page number 886 of the Pew Bibles. Now to give you the background, it was 600 years before Christ. And the book of Daniel opens with King Nebuchadnezzar on the throne in Babylon. And you can see this on the map behind me. The Assyrians had been replaced as the dominant power in the region. And in 586 BC, the Babylonians had sacked Jerusalem. But if you notice carefully, the book of Daniel assumes there was also an earlier invasion of Judah. And in this previous invasion, Nebuchadnezzar had carried off captives including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And it's here in chapter 3 of Daniel that we find one of the most inspiring statements in the whole of the Old Testament. And it's found in verse 16. And I love what we read here. Listen to what Daniel records in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to the king, 
O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hands, O king. But, even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. And you almost want to give a wee cheer, don't you? So how were they so confident? They knew the God they served. Yes, they knew the God they served. And there were three great truths about this one true and living God that burned within them. Number one, God is above us. Number two, God is with us. And number three, God is for us. And so tonight, we're going to explore these in turn. And so firstly, God is above us. Verses 1 to 18. And a few years ago in Chicago, I was reminded of this. I was studying at a place called Wheaton College near Chicago. and feeling very intellectual. Uh, Alison and I went to a place called the Adler Planetarium. And if you ever go to the Adler Planetarium, inside you'll find what is called the Star Rider Theatre. Doesn't it sound great? The Star Rider Theatre. And let me tell you what happens. You enter this very high-tech room. You sit down, you look up, and you embark on a journey of discovery of space. And as you do that, you can gaze around at some of the 10 trillion billion stars in this gigantic universe. And as I looked up, I couldn't help but think of the God who is above us. The one who reigns, reigns utterly supreme. Professor George Greenstein, a leading astronomer, says this. He writes, As we survey all the evidence, the thought insistently arises that some supernatural agency must be involved. I ask this question. Is it possible that suddenly, without intending to, we have stumbled upon scientific proof of the existence of a supreme being? Was it God who stepped in and so providentially crafted the cosmos for our benefit? Two and a half thousand years ago, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego did not go on a trip on the Star Rider Theatre. But here's what they did know. They knew that God is above us and he is awesome in power. And that was their anchor in a time of crisis. So let's take a look at their dilemma. If you cast your eye at verse 1, we learn that King Nebuchadnezzar had a very slight character flaw. He was an egomaniac. He had just built a humongous statue, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. And if you turn back to chapter 2, turn one page back, you'll find out why. Now in verse 1 of chapter 2, we read the king had a dream. And he went to all the astrologers, but none of them could help interpret the dream. And so he went to Daniel, one of the Jewish captives. And in verse 31, we find Daniel's interpretation. Now know what Daniel said. In this dream was an enormous statue. And it symbolized Nebuchadnezzar's greatness, but also his weakness. And now here's the bombshell. In verse 44, if you look down chapter 2, Daniel says this. 
In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And that is after his kingdom had ended, Nebuchadnezzar's. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure forever. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar's little kingdom would perish. And God's kingdom would triumph. And so in chapter 3, turn back over in verse 1. Take a look at how Nebuchadnezzar reacts. He builds a massive statue. He sets it up in Judah, just south of modern Baghdad. And he commands everyone to fall down and worship it. In the words of Frederick Nietzsche, If there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? And for those who refused, well look at verse 6. They would be flung into a blazing furnace. Doesn't he sound a really nice guy? Nebuchadnezzar. And that's the crisis facing Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Many of you will know the poignant story of Elizabeth Elliot. Back in 1952, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot obeyed God's call. And they went to Ecuador as missionaries. And their passion in life was to live for God and to reach the Uka Indians with the gospel. But one day in January 1956, Jim and his colleagues went missing and eventually they were found, speared to death. And it left Elizabeth a widow. She was still only in her 20s and she was left alone with an eight-month-old daughter. And I am sure that we could tell our own stories about trials that we have faced in life. Maybe in our family. It might be in our health. Maybe in our relationships. Or our work situation. So let me ask you this. How do you respond when life takes you all the way to the ragged edge of reality? How do you respond to that? What can we learn here from Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? Well notice, it was not only a time of crisis. It was also a test of confidence. And here we come to verse 14. Could things get even worse? They stand before Nebuchadnezzar and look what he bells at them. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? And he asks, now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? A few years ago, I was working in business. And I took some of my colleagues away for a team building weekend to Keswick in the Lake District. And feeling very macho, as you do in these situations, we tried abseiling. Now, has anyone here ever tried abseiling? Yes, it is the scariest thing. I have ever done. And let me tell you what happens. You find a big cliff, okay? The bigger the better. You put a harness on, you lean back, and you trust a skinny little rope to hold you. And it's so scary. Now here's the point. In verse 16, notice why these three comrades had such confidence. They were trusting in God's sovereign power. Look once more at this wonderful defiance. And you can give a silent cheer. 
This is what they say in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hands, O king. And tonight they would have joined us in that song. Powerful, so powerful. Your glory fills the skies. Your mighty works displayed for all to see. The beauty of your majesty awakes my heart to sing. How marvellous, how wonderful you are. Let me quote you here from someone called Abraham Kuyper. Abraham Kuyper was a great Dutch theologian at the start of the 20th century. And eventually he became Prime Minister of Holland. And he was someone who marvelled at the supremacy of of God. Listen to what he once famously said. He said this There is not in the total expanse of human life a single square inch of which God, who alone is sovereign, does not declare that is mine. And folks, I wonder if you and I really, really believe that. That our lives are not in human lives. They're not in human hands. Our lives are in the hands of the almighty creator God. And secondly, they were trusting in God's eternal plan. I love those words in verse 18. If you look at verse 18, they replied to King Nebuchadnezzar, but even if he does not save us, we want you to know, King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now just think about that and think about your own life. Even when some things were still a mystery, okay, they still trusted in God. I think that's great. Why? Because they knew the God whom they had believed. And he is working out his glorious eternal plan. As Job could say, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. So firstly, God is above us. And secondly, God is with us. Verses 19 to 25. Now, I don't know if you saw on the news last week, the quite moving story about Prince Harry in Africa. And you may recall, the third in line to the throne was in Africa two years ago. And there he had met a four-year-old boy called Mutsu. And tragically, Mutsu's father and mother had died of AIDS. And so Mutsu had found himself to be an orphan. But it was touching two years ago to see how the prince had developed a special bond with this little orphan called Matsu. And last week, Prince Harry returned once again to Africa and he met up with his friend. And as the prince arrived, the staff in the orphanage told him, he's been waiting for you. And then they spent time walking together around the orphanage. Now I read that and I thought to myself, Richard, How much greater is it to be in the presence of the king of the universe that I can walk with him who reigns supreme and I don't even have to wait. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. C.S. Lewis says this. He who has God and many other things has no more than he who has God alone. And we see that strikingly here in Daniel chapter 3. For here we find a divine encounter. Now follow with me this amazing story in verse 19. 
The story continues. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. But he's about to get the biggest fright of his entire life. He looks inside, and what does he find? Verse 25. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. So who was this fourth person? Was it the son of God in a pre-incarnate appearance? Or was it an angelic figure? Well, the text doesn't say, but I think it was Jesus. And I wonder what they said to each other. I wonder if the fourth person in the furnace told them how proud the father was of their loyalty, devotion, and love. And I wonder what they said to that fourth man. I'm sure they poured out adoration, gratitude, and worship. You see, the furnace, which looked like the end of their lives, it turns out to be the greatest event that they had ever experienced. Why? Because God was there. This one who reigns far above us in splendor is also gloriously with us. And they must have known that wonderful psalm, the psalm of David, Psalm 139, which puts it beautifully, powerfully, and poetically. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my beds in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. You see, the furnace turns out to be the place where they met God. Because, friends, God has given us a promise. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And in the original Greek, the word never means never. Richard Wormbrand was a Romanian pastor. And for his faith, he had served many years in solitary confinement. But he once composed these words in prison. They're quite surprising words. Listen to these words. Often at night, I dance for joy in my cell because I was aware of the presence of God. You see, he knew the presence of God by God's Spirit. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And let me tell you why we can know that. It's because God is not only above us, and God is not only with us. We can live with confidence, because God is also for us. Verses 26 to 30. And here we come to the focal point of this marvellous story. The divine one. The all-creating one. The one who is indescribable came into this world to rescue us, hell-deserving sinners. And as we close, I want us to notice two things about this rescue. Firstly, we are rescued in love. 
Let me illustrate this. Last Saturday, I was out doing the gardening, as I do all the time. And my next door neighbour suddenly appears with two three-week-old babies. Now, I am not the most observant person, okay? But that was quite a surprise. And actually, they've just become foster parents. It's tremendous. And in a sense, they're helping to rescue these twins that they've been given. And they're absolutely crazy about them. It's all they speak about. And regular trips are made to Tesco's for nappies. And sleepless nights are gladly endured. Why? Because they love them. Now the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. We get just a tiny glimpse of how much we are worth in God's sight. How much God loves us. And in John 3.16, our eyes are opened to the full extent of God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now last week, I received this magazine uh, on my desk. It actually has the word move printed on the front cover. That was a slight hint. But let me read you a story about Laura. Uh, Laura became a Christian. And here's how she discovered that God is for us. Okay? Listen to what she writes. Laura writes this. I had many questions in my mind. If God has the absolute power, why doesn't he force everybody to believe? Am I good enough for God? How can I be sure that Jesus is the Son of God? I come from Helsinki in Finland. I study microbiology at Warwick University. Last summer, while doing an internship in Berlin, I met Sharon, who works with a gap at my university in the UK. Now she writes this. After reading eyewitness accounts in the Bible, and having numerous discussions with Sharon, I realised that it is all true. God gave me a free will, so I am not forced to believe in him, but can make the decision myself. Nobody is perfect, she writes, and we don't deserve God's love. But I could be forgiven through Jesus' sacrifice. And she writes, it was hard letting go and giving God control. But I prayed that God would forgive my sins and invited Jesus into my life. And she writes at the bottom, God loves and care calls for everyone. But some people like myself before are too scared, ashamed or stuck in their bad habits to listen. Now I want to share the gospel with other students like me. And so the challenge for us tonight is simply this. How will I respond to God's amazing love? Simple question. So a Christian is rescued in love. And finally, a Christian is rescued for eternity. And we come to the end of this story. Verse 28, if you look down. God was establishing a kingdom that could never be destroyed. And in his perfect will, and God's will is always perfect, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were to be part of his preparation for that great day. But do you know what really inspires me? It's this. Whatever happened to them, whether God rescued them from the furnace or not, they had an assurance that nothing in all of creation could ever take away. They belong to God. They are citizens in his kingdom and their future is eternally secure. Jim Packer 
in his well-known book, Knowing God, writes this. The book as a whole, the book of Daniel, forms a dramatic reminder that the God of Israel is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that God's hand is on history at every point, that history, indeed, is no more than his story, the unfolding of his eternal plan, and that the kingdom which will triumph in the end is God's. And so the Apostle Paul could write those immortal words, wonderful words, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, I wonder tonight, where is your assurance in life? Is it in what you have achieved? In your possessions? Or is it in the God who is for us? And so in conclusion, tonight we have looked at the secret for living with confidence. And it means knowing that God is above us. It means knowing that God is with us. And it means knowing that God is for us. Now we commenced by thinking about the Edinburgh Marathon. Let me close by quoting from someone who ran their life race with confidence. And no matter what storms they might face. It's a quote from the Apostle Paul. And here's what Paul could write. Near the end of his life. To one of his companions called Timothy. And he writes this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is a store for me. The crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. For he also could say, from the very depths of his soul, how great is the God we serve. Let us pray.